Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm your host, Angelo Siliberti, and in this 50-minute hour, we will be featuring guests that use dynamic thinking and therapeutic interventions to bring about growth through group process. It's our hope that in listening to the podcast, you may just be inspired to think more deeply about your own experiences in group, as well as to hear what makes great group leaders tick. If you'd like to support the show, we would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes. Also, check out our social media pages at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas for featured guests, subjects, or panels, please feel free to email us at podcast at fcgps.org. We really appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events soon. So I'm your host, Angelo broadcasting from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I'm inviting you to pull up a seat, lend an ear, and hear about what's happening in the ever-evolving circle of group dynamics. We're very excited today to have on the podcast Dr. Maria Riva. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yes, we are very excited to to, uh, be speaking with you and to be introducing you to our community Maria is going to be the keynote speaker at our upcoming conference, The Stories Within, Working with Unspoken Material in Group Psychotherapy. So Dr. Maria Riva is a professor and training director in counseling psychology at the Moorgridge College of Education at the University of Denver. She is a past president of the Association for Specialists in Group Work and a past president of the American Psychological Association's Division 49, Society for Group Psychology and Group Psychotherapy. She is currently on the editorial board for Group Psychology and Group Psychotherapy and past associate editor of the Journal for Specialists in Group Work. She also co-edited the Handbook of Group Counseling and Psychotherapy. She is passionate about group dynamics and group leadership, teaching both group counseling theory and advanced group counseling. Her areas of research are in the training and practice of group counseling, as well as other training considerations surrounding supervision of individual and group psychotherapy. Well, Maria, I'm so excited to be having this conversation and talking with you more about both your teaching and your leadership and all the ways in which you bring group into a variety of settings, including community and agency-based settings. To begin with, your bio just speaks so much to your passion for groups and for teaching and leading groups. And I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about the story of how you became so inspired by counseling and group in particular. Sure. It's true. I've been excited about groups for, I don't know, maybe 35 years, it feels like. And I do remember being in a group class in my doctoral program. I think actually, if we go back a little further even, I was in a mental health center after my master's degree. And what I realized was that people were obtaining their cases, just sort of like giving them without really a lot of thought about what the client match would be. And what was happening at the time, which was early, it was in the 80s, very little was known about um, sexual abuse. And there was a lot of clients at that point. I was in a very underserved population where the mill, it was a mill town and steel mills had really pretty much collapsed. There was a lot of domestic violence and a lot of just poor people who really were struggling. So there's a lot of 
clients who came in reporting sexual abuse and no one was trained to do it. And I realized that I had clients that all had sort of a same theme and sexual abuse was of interest to me that I could start groups. And I didn't know anything about groups. I read everything I could get a hold of. And a lot of the stuff at the time was really pretty bad, like put people on the hot seat and tell their story. So I actually learned a lot of from the people who I worked with, the clients who'd been sexually abused, because I did do several groups for sexual abuse at that point. And it was really interesting to me just to be able to learn from them and to get better at doing groups. And then I think more and more information was coming out about how to work with sexual abuse, but also how to work with groups. So I I felt I gained a lot of confidence. I've done a lot of research um, also in terms of sexual abuse with groups. So that's sort of the start of my group experience. And then it continued because when I went to my doctorate program at the University of Pittsburgh, I did have a person who was a group person, Dr. Milt Seligman, who taught me both my group class and my advanced group class and did process in our class, which was fascinating. So then there was many, many more opportunities for me to lead groups, to do group research, to be involved. I think group organizations are the kindest people in the world. They include you. And so I've been involved in many different ways. Mm. Well, and it's so inspiring that actually what really started it was a group experience working with underserved people. What was so central was that you were actually learning from the experience of leading groups rather than just coming in with kind of a prearranged theoretical idea about it. I had no idea what I was doing. But one of the moments of that that has stuck in my mind is that no matter how much I, I did realize I should talk to clients individually before they joined group. And I realized something that I still think is very, very pertinent in group. When people say I can't get my clients to get in group, I think part of what really happens is that people need some time to be able to think about it. And so I would regularly say, you know, this is what I think would be a good strategy for you. Group is probably the next piece. And I want you to think about it. I want you to come back and I want you to, let's talk about the questions that you have and give them a couple weeks and not that one shot thing. And that was helpful because everybody agreed, which was the first interesting thing I learned. The second one was that no matter how many times I told them that my co-leader was going to be a woman, they were convinced that when they showed up, I would be lying to them, which was a part of the trust in the whole experience that they had before. And so I remember sitting there in the first group and they were all late. And I was thinking, they're not going to show up. They did all show up. And that was the thing they said. We were concerned that you would have a male here, that you would have not told us the truth. And that was my other startling understanding about the whole picture of the development of trust and and cohesion and all the things that are so pertinent for group (laughs) that I learned early on in my first group. Mm -hmm. That they already came in sharing about the stories of their life and their experiences with people and being lied to by people in positions of authority and all of those things. Right. And one other thing I, I learned that these things have carried on for me as really poignant kind of learning experience was that groups for sexual abuse, you don't have to have them say anything. They walk in the room and they know they're not alone, which that universality was so powerful for them because they didn't have to say anything. They just Mm -hmm. looked at other people and they thought, okay, all their people have experienced the same thing I have. Right. Just like an unspoken understanding. 
Well, and I was also moved by the way you described just inviting them into group, but also really encouraging them to have their own sense of pacing and autonomy. It sounds like that must have already just began to establish so much trust in you as a group leader or just the ability to kind of have this as an opportunity for them. Again, I mean, I think that I didn't have anybody really training me. And I think that's probably still true. I, I hate to say, I think that people are really, who run groups in the community, really lack training. I, I think that we, you know, you can join a group or an organization, but most people don't who do groups. And so how I learned was reading and listening and having the opportunity to, to run groups. And I'm sure my early ones were not very good. But I think training is another aspect of groups that we need to do a much better job of. Mm -hmm. Well, and since really it seems like currently the focus of your work is on training a future generation of group leaders, would you share with us more about your vision for what that kind of training looks like and what you think helps people to, to learn to be really excellent group leaders? Sure. A couple things. One is I teach group and I teach advanced group and I love group. So part of it is I think that my views about group also are conveyed to my students. But a lot of people say, I don't like group. They come in and say that. And I do think that I'm going to make a dichotomy that's not real, that there's group people and there's people who do group. And I think they're very different. And I think that people who, who are group people really know the effectiveness of group and are committed to that. I think that people who do group are not so sure about that. A lot of people, I think, don't know the literature in terms of the group's very effective for lots of different people. And a lot of people also do groups because they have to. It's like, okay, in an agency, you're, you're it, as opposed to selecting that. And so I think that when I teach group, I want them to really understand that groups are effective and how it's effective and why their group that they ran, which is regularly the case, wasn't effective. And I often am excited to see the little light bulbs that go on in my class and say, oh, that's why it didn't work. Yes, that's why it didn't work. So that you don't say it didn't work. It didn't work because there's really reasons why it didn't work. And that it was actually yesterday, somebody in my class said, oh, I like groups now. I'm doing groups. And I said, well, two weeks ago, you said you hated them. So it was very exciting to me for her to be able to put together the fact that she knows a little bit about group and she could use it in this group and she could feel effective. And we talked a little bit about how she might change things. And so we regularly talk about problems that they're experiencing when they do a group of 15. And I'm saying, well, that's kind of big, you know, <laughs> I'll say to them something like, you might want to think about talking to the agency and see if you can do two separate groups, because that would be perfect. And you'd get more hours for that, you know, and it would work better. So we regularly are solving problems as we go about what they're actually doing in the community. And they're not generally getting trained very much to do groups. M most of the focus is on individuals. So I have sort of a, a view about a group that they need to know the research, they need to understand, and understand how to do it. One of the things that I think is true about groups is that I teach group process, but most of my students will not do process groups. So they need to understand all the different kind of groups and when a particular group is the most helpful. So they may need to do psychoed groups, and a lot of them, I suggest they start out doing that because that's easier than a process group for sure. 
most of them will not have the opportunity to do an actual process group, which is in some ways too bad, but in other ways they're working with underserved populations who really are not going to be doing process groups in community mental health. And so I think that they need to learn how to understand process. Whether or not they do a process group, they need to understand what's happening in front of them when people aren't even talking. What's happening? How can they change their behavior? If they're not doing a process group, they need to understand process. So we do learn process, and we also talk about how to even do process in a workshop or in a staff meeting or a seeing process everywhere and then they never can quite go back and not see it, right? Mm-hmm. It's pretty exciting when you start to look at that level. It is exciting, and I'm finding so much of what you're saying so interesting because it seems like you're really training, communicating a few things. One, groups can be very effective, and that doesn't just happen just on its own. There are specific factors that really have to be considered or taken into account in terms of group becoming effective. Mm-hmm. And helping a person to understand that or why previous experiences with groups have been difficult or painful really helps to also free them to realize that other options can coexist or right. other possibilities are there. But then also what you said about process, it seems like helping your students to begin to pay a particular kind of attention to what's happening interactionally between people. They need to understand process because I think it's really an excellent way to have interpersonal relationships is understand what's going on. But also I teach all of my classes with some amount of process. So I I have a right now an internship class for master students and a lot of the pieces and I'll stop and I'll say this is a good group leader would do this or not do this. So for example, we usually stop several times we're on quarters and maybe after session three, I might say, so what's working and what's not working? And you will want to evaluate your groups in that way. You'll want to know whether what you're doing is helpful for them and get some feedback from your clients in your group. And so I'll do that in my class. And then I'll say, this is a good strategy also in leading groups. Of course, I don't do group counseling with my students. But I do think that there's a lot of overlap between group process in all kinds of different situations and what they can learn from that. And so I will say things like to them, who wants to go next? And then I'll stop and I'll say, you know, it's not a really good leader behavior. I'm, I think maybe I really want to know who's willing to go next because I want them to understand the difference between wanting and willing and all of those pieces that intentional language with your clients is really important, Mm -hmm. right? The difference between thinking and feelings, those kind of things. So yeah, we get down to a lot of different areas that I think they can generalize to their group counseling courses and classes. Yeah. And so you're providing them a, like a taste for a particular kind of experience. Mm -hmm. Your classes must be very popular. They're fun. Yeah. They sound very enlivening. Yeah, I I usually say to them, I'm here to have fun, so hopefully you are too. (laughs) Since so many of them are then going to be going into communities or agencies where they may be doing a lot of psychoeducational work, how do you talk with them about the role of process within those settings and when attending to process could be helpful, when it could be a distraction? or even overstimulating, or just how to weave process into those kind of groups that have a different framework? 
Well, I think process is always going on. So I think it's a continuum. So I think that they need to be able to tend to it. Look at it, notice it, and then maybe ask about it. I mean, it could be as simple as no one's saying anything. I wonder what's going on. In a didactic group, that would be just as important to be able to notice that. Processed groups, I think, are not all that common for my students. Knowing process and responding to process in any kind of group is important. And so we really do look at the ways that give them a lot of opportunities to say, you could say this, or you could do this, or let's talk about what happened in your group. It's funny, because I'm working a lot with early group leaders, and they often don't want to say it just directly. And I think that that's one thing that a lot of people say, oh, you can just say to them, so what's going on? <laughs> yes. So I'm really encouraging them to start to be able to notice and say something when it seems really important. And then a process group is totally different. I mean, I think it would be lovely for everybody to be able to work in a process group. But most of my students do not. And almost all of my students are doing groups in their practicum and in their internship. And so it's really critical, I think, for the program to teach people how to do group because they're doing it. And mm -hmm. they're doing it oftentimes without any training on site because people are doing groups, but a lot of people haven't been trained to do groups. So I, I regularly will not want them to tell their supervisor that I said they should do something. <laughs> You know, I think it's better for them to suggest that maybe they would like to start a new group. And somebody actually said that yesterday. I was so excited. Somebody's working in a, a community agency for Latinx clients, and he has a woman for a client, and she really was feeling very disconnected and isolated. And I said, do you have any groups in your community, in your agency? And he said, no. And I said, well, would they be okay if you started one? And he said, yeah, I think they would. I would really like to do that. So it's like planting seeds also that some people really can benefit from group and can benefit from group without having to be an individual also. This has been a, an interesting point over my time as being a, a group person is that lots and lots of people have said, yes, but they also need to be an individual. And sometimes that's true. But most of the time, I don't necessarily think that is true. I think the group is... And that's the difference between what I was saying before as a group person is I think that the, the power of group, I believe in the power of group, and I've seen it so many times that I do not think that people necessarily need to be an individual and group, which has often been the case for people who've been trained to do individual, haven't been trained to do group. They aren't confident in the group. And so it's that they need to do both. And it's just not, get trying to shift that thinking I think is really helpful process is levels and levels and levels of process. So first of all, being aware of it. And second of all, being able to say something directly about what's, what you see. And then also just determining how much, what's the point of the group? You know, what's the goal of the group? If the group is skill development, probably less so process and more skill building, more role playing, those kind of things. So they need to understand the difference between those and understand the goal. A goal is pretty much, in my opinion, the key to understand where you're going with this group. Right. Because it, it seems like if so much of what you're focused on is really wanting people to have positive experiences of group that are effective for what they're trying to address, 
researching and then asking the right questions in terms of a person's experience seems so vital in terms of really getting information on what was helpful and what wasn't. Right. That's great. And Which so, is part of evaluation, by the way, as you say, starting the evaluation process early is to stop the group at some point after a few sessions and really asking or getting information about how they're doing and how I'm doing as the leader. What's been helpful so far and what hasn't been helpful so far is a great discussion for informal way to assess. I know there's a lot of formal ways to assess. I, we could give certainly give them measures, and I know several people do that. Gary Burlingame has talked about that a lot, and I, I appreciate that. And I think that across time, people need to understand to include the group and to assess because I have worked in the community a lot. We work with group agencies. We're working with several different group agencies in terms of students working on dissertations. And they all do a lot of groups all the time, including a jail setting, a residential treatment facility, a sexual assault treatment facility, and others. But it's one of the things that is really true is that people don't assess the effectiveness of their groups. And that's sad for me because I think that assessment is a key piece to help people know that their groups are working, figuring out how to improve their groups. And so we've been doing a lot of that, assessing groups, and which has been fabulous. One of the most exciting ones recently was working at a sexual assault trauma center. Do all, they, all, they do groups. And they are now using the same measures that we put in place for a dissertation. So, and just have committed to saying, wow, that was great. This is good information to have. And it worked. <laughs> it worked really well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I'm always excited about that when we can help community organizations think about improving their groups. Absolutely. And that's something, I mean, there's so much about what you're saying that I'm finding really exciting and wanting to address. But I mean, the piece that you said about assessment and actually really treating that as a conversation between the group leader and the group members and inviting them into that conversation and, and then having that occur over the course of the life of the group, not just once or at, at the beginning or the end, that it's really something that's unfolding. Right. just seems like such a wonderful way to model being in relationship. Well, some groups are so dynamic, right? So they change and grow, but we haven't really often addressed them that way. That usually it's like a time point we measure or something, but groups are incredibly dynamic. So I want to know what's going on through the life of the group. So that's one of the reasons why group research is hard to do to get enough people and groups. But one way that we've done that is to try to get a comparison group. More than that, what we've done is looked at the group across many different time points to look at change, to look at what's happening, to look at how cohesion develops hope, and also then just things like outcome measures like PTSD and other things that shame we've looked at. So a lot of things that don't change, you know, I mean, they may change pre and post, but that's not my question. It's where do they change and how can we help increase that a bit? We're doing a study right now, which I think is really fascinating about eating disorders. And again, it's very complicated, lots of relapse. How does and, and some of the research suggests that assertiveness seems to be maybe the key that doesn't get addressed. 
And George Tesca's work in this has been really important for us because obviously it does groups for people with eating disorders and assertiveness and those personal qualities, people can surely gain weight, but can they learn to be assertive? And uh, our thinking was that relapse might very well happen when some interpersonal kind of thing happens for the person. And so it's one of the things we're looking at in terms of, okay, can group do a better job of actually focusing on the interpersonal variables, not just the getting back to, to weight gain and other variables that are measured in terms of recovery. So that's another like actually really thing. focusing in on that communication factor. And interpersonal kind of connection. So oftentimes a breakup of a relationship or some kind of a, something that happens where somebody feels like they weren't able to be assertive in a situation where they, they really needed to be. There's no, hardly any research on relapse. So we were, we're really in the middle of it now looking at relapse and, and recovery, but thinking that it's related to an interpersonal slight or interpersonal problem area that causes the relapse or, you know, relates to them really having a hard time then. And assertiveness is a problem for people who have eating disorders. So just another thought, if we can identify some variables like that, we can increase the amount of time that group spends on that, really working with that. Absolutely. Uh, and having a new experience of oneself and actually using both assertiveness, and I'm even thinking about healthy anger, to really insist on being heard and responded to. Right. I want to say this. I, I work with a lot of women, obviously, and most of my students. I would. I think women in general have a hard time oftentimes being assertive. And the messages that I hear regularly from my students is that you don't want to be too direct with your clients. And obviously, somehow direct is a, a bad word. I don't. And so we have to talk a lot about that. So it's eating disorders are primarily with women. And then on top of that, people who may not have been assertive and then have some difficulty in the eating disorders world, I think makes it harder. So I think there's some things that are starting to be helpful identifiers, so maybe some components that we can look at. But I would really like to have treatment groups include those ability to be more assertive for eating disorders, I think would be great. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and then that, I think, raises an important question around the relationship between what you're finding as a researcher and then speaking with these agencies that are serving underprivileged and marginalized communities and some of the limitations that they're facing in terms of what they can offer. I'd be curious, to, any thoughts that you have about how to talk to agencies or what the relationship is that you're finding between what's effective in group and then helping these community centers to actually implement that. Yeah, you've identified a very tricky issue. And I think that one of the things that's beneficial is I, I live in Denver. So we have students in practicum and internships all over the area. And generally what we've done is worked with agencies who've had a good experience with our students. And then I go with the student and I will say, you know, you're doing a lot of great work. And so I think it's really to honor the fact that they're doing groups and that they understand groups are important, but they won't have the research or they won't have the deep understanding of groups. So we just go and say, this has worked very well for us actually, is that you're doing groups and they're great. And we appreciate that you're doing groups. And we really think that one of the research projects we'd like to do here is to look at what's working 
well for you. Your point is a good one that you have to be very careful because you certainly don't want to say to them, we want to do this because you're not doing it. And we aren't sure that what we are suggesting is going to work, but we do want to know what they're doing that's working. And they've all been very appreciative. And I know this, this is about research in general is that you, we have to see people as partners. Mm-hmm. We cannot see agencies as people who we go in, we do the research and we leave. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the goals here too, is that, okay, They take our students for practicum, which is great. We look at their groups and work with them. We do some training of group leaders if they want that. Then we go back and we give them the results and then we talk about another project. So it's an ongoing relationship with the community. It's not a one-shot deal. That would be disrespectful. And so it's not easy. It's not necessarily quick, but it's very rewarding when agencies start to think about groups differently. It's very exciting. I have had the luxury of actually watching that for years. It's, it's pretty cool. Oh, it's so exciting. And especially since there, the, there really is a common vision or mission that everybody's trying to address. Well, and I think that that leads into something that I understand about the, the core values of the department that you're within and really trying to help group leaders to understand, and that's social justice and inclusivity. And especially working with the populations and in the centers that you are, I'd be curious to hear how you teach or espouse those kind of values with your students and what your vision would be for how they would be addressing and responding to those issues in their groups. Well, that's a big question and an important one for sure. So I'll answer it on different levels. One is that it became very clear to me when we co-edited the Handbook of Group Counseling and Psychotherapy first in 2004 and then in 2014, second edition. We wanted a section. It was set up so that every single chapter in the book would be related to both practitioners and researchers, which isn't done usually. It's usually, you know, one or the other. And the area that we found the hardest to find much information about was the area of multicultural counseling or different differences. and there wasn't much research on it and there still isn't actually in working with people of color or people with diverse identities as with all different kinds of people would be fabulous, but the research hasn't been there. And so that's one area that needs to be done way better and it's not. So our program focuses heavily on cultural humility, understanding being sensitive learning how to address microaggressions, and if you do one, (laughs) learn how to apologize. So that's a huge part of everything we do at the University of Denver. I'm counseling psych. So in terms of groups, what we've really focused a lot on is the leader and how the leader needs to be culturally, have cultural humility. So one of the ways for us to do that is to teach our students that Okay, it's even in a group, you have people with lots of different identities. And actually, that's a really good strength of of group. You want people to be different, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that that makes a rich, exciting group. I think that at first, some of the students want people to be all the same because it makes the theme easier to work with them. But I think that that, when they get more confidence, it's exciting to have differences. But, and also, I don't know really what 
cultural competence means because there's so many different cultures and so many different value systems for people that we could never know them all. So what our students learn is that they need to be culturally humble. They need to ask questions and really understand how to learn from their clients. And that collaboration is one of the things I learned years ago when I was working with uh, my first group who were women who'd been sexually abused. And so from a leader's point of view, to understand not only that every opportunity in the group differences are an opportunity, maybe a challenge, but an opportunity, not a horrible thing, right? And so to learn how to work with differences and interactions between people that are different or things that I might say because I have no idea about the culture or something that really wasn't very sensitive. So to learn about how I might also show as a model how they may do that, I think is important. I've been talking about this recently to my students too, about what you say about yourself. We can't expect our clients to be willing to talk about themselves if we're not willing to say who we are, my privilege as a white woman, and talk about culture in a group, which is sometimes the very thing they need to talk about, right? I think sometimes it's secondary to what they need to work on. We all have a culture and we all have value systems that will be brought up in group. And so to be able to learn how to be open about culture, and it's a pretty tricky topic for a lot of people and how to work with actual microaggressions you see in your group because people will will do that. And so there's no easy answer to your question. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, what makes us so rich. <laughs> but to be able to discuss it and to be open to it. So I do a lot of role playing. My students probably fear me in lots of ways because they know and I've told them at any moment I could break out in a role play. And I think it's helpful for them to see a group leader do that, how to do that at any moment. So I'm very willing, really, very willing to do that. And some of that will be about how do you talk about culture? How do you talk about your own views? And most of my students have a lot of, we have benefits for sure. The ability to go to school and mm -hmm. pay to be in a master's and doctor program. And then to have clients who are not, don't have that experience at all. So a lot of my students really need to, to come to some understanding about their own cultural identity and how they view people and to work with people who are underserved, which they all do. It actually, that's one of the goals of the, the program is to select sites that people can do that. That's really what community mental health is about or hospital settings in general. Schools in Denver are quite diverse. So I'm not sure. I think it needs to be in every aspect of a program, in every aspect of what I teach in group needs to do a way better job, I think, of actually looking at culture as it affects groups. Because sometimes there might be only one person of color in a group. And how, how does that affect that person? And how can we include that person more without putting them on the spot about the fact that they should know all about their culture, which is ridiculous, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. So, to and really, how cultures even in the, and multiculturalism is even in the room in predominantly white settings, right? And so it's culture, but it's also, you know, sexual orientation. It's mm -hmm. about you know religion. It's about mm -hmm. politics, right? 
my students may very well have a political leaning one way or the other. And I'll say, but you'll have clients that have something very different. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be able, be able to open to all of those, in my opinion, are exciting variables. And the very reason why I love group is because of the, the diversity within the group setting that I want to understand and to help people in the group appreciate, as opposed to seeing that as I think a lot of early leaders see that as, oh no, I, I don't want them to start talking because I don't know what I'll do then, which is probably true in many cases. But I love it when the diversity is sort of highlighted or I do appreciate initially we need to be looking at similarities and connecting people together. But I think that you can connect people together and also appreciate people's differences at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. And how to unfold that conversation, even if it's a really difficult one. It raises so many interesting and I think timely questions for me as a group leader, because I also experience it so frequently in my groups, especially those questions around when a moment of bias happens or a microaggression occurs, addressing that as the group leader and how to work with a group member feeling hurt or offended by what they experienced as a biased comment. And then being in the dilemma of having the pain of that experience, but not being and not needing to be in the position of educating the, the other person as to why what they said was offensive or biased. And then who addresses that in the group? Because there's also that question of, well, that pain is not going to be able to really be recognized and responded to if there's also not an understanding of where that came from. But then who in the group is holding that? And to what extent do we go into those kind of educational pieces within the group setting? Is it from another group member or is it from the leader? How to follow up with those kind of moments in a group? It's just so rich and complex, but feels so important. Yep, you've nailed it there. It's like multiple different levels of potential ways to intervene across time too. I think that it's not, those things are not one shot. They come up in different ways and they need to be that's another excitement of group is the dynamics of the mm -hmm. group across time, not just in the session, mm -hmm. but that might come up, you know, again, or somebody might not be ready to address it then, but they will three sessions or five sessions down the road. So I think that it's helpful to be able to see the complexities and not be fearful of them, which I think is true for a lot of early, early leaders is that I always say that, if the group members figure out you're not wanting to talk about it, they just won't. Right. And then what's happening to it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but so it's really helping to train group leaders to step in and to begin to say the unsayable as well as help the other group members to speak what's not being said. Yeah. I think that the group leaders really also need to be very patient and, you know, to be able to wait and to see what comes up and not get scared and be okay with silences Early people have a hard time with silences, and I usually think if I wait, something really important comes up next. But for early people, I think it's pretty scary to have to sit there and wait for that. Right, there's a pressure and anxiety. I need to be doing something. But it's also an expectation that when you ask a question or you wonder about something, that you're, you're asking for real information from the group, that you really want to hear it, that you're not just trying to be tricky or something is that you really are waiting patiently because one of the things that I 
think is really true is that people have very different ways to process information. And therefore, we should not think that the people who talk first or the loudest are the people who have the most to say in terms of content. The other people, somehow we really need to be able to hear everybody. And some people really take a long time or don't think that they have anything to say or they think that other people have said what they want to say, whatever. That's the dilemma, I think, also to be able to be patient and mm-hmm. know there's a lot of stuff not being said. Right. It's going to be really helpful for me to understand what's happening with people. And there may need to just be some time before those things can be said and acknowledged. Yeah. yeah. I find it so interesting. I mean, thinking about pacing and especially just how actually I think the unconscious moves quite slowly in a lot of ways. And then how we as a group leader are working internally within our own selves around our pacing and being curious about what may be driving us to say something at a particular time. Uh, Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's one of those things where if you have enough experience, I think you get, you finally get it. It gets easier. Timing gets easier. If I think about how to teach that, it's like, it does come with experience. I think when I've waited long enough to say something where I waited long enough not to say something or that I think that the group will come up with it or I think that all comes with experience. And, and I think that people can learn a lot of stuff in my classes, but unless they have group experience, they're not going to be able to put that together. A lot of group experience, one group, two groups does not make an expert. No, like, <laughs> <laughs> Some things just come with time. <laughs> And training, I think. I mean, I think it's lovely, as you were talking about your own group. I mean, you haven't been doing groups in isolation. You belong to an organization. You are around a lot of group people, as I have been for years and years. And I've really counted on those people in group dynamics in ASGW and other organizations to really help me think about different situations. And I don't hesitate to call somebody and say, hmm, What do you think about this? I mean, and I think that that's one of the pieces that makes people, some people different. They have those opportunities to continue to learn. And I feel like I'm learning all the time uh, still from my students and from my experiences of working with community agencies who are doing groups. And I think that a lot of times people do group in isolation. I'm not talking about private practice, but even in an agency where they're doing a group, they're trying to do the best job they can, but they really don't have other people in that agency who really understand group or mm-hmm. who are training people to do group. And I would like to say something about supervision of groups mm-hmm. also, because I think that that's another area. Training is problematic, but so is supervision. So well, I'll ask regularly, do you get supervision on your groups? which is generally a no. And if they do, the supervision often is about the client, not about the leadership portion of it, about the group process piece. And so I think that that's another area that really needs to get better is that if we're going to do supervision of groups and community agencies, that it really needs to be looking at audio taping or videotaping the group, really looking at what's the dynamics that are occurring, not about only client problems. What did the client do or say, which is often the kind of supervision that my students get in their practicum and internship. 
In some ways, it's really a misplaced attention. Not that the client, not that obviously what's happening with the client is vital, or but really being willing to shift the attention back to what's happening with the leader as well as interactionally with the group as a whole. Well, it's also assuming that it's any problems in the group are client problems, as right. some way that the leader didn't do something that was helpful, right? As I say to them regularly, my students, um, you need to always think about yourself first. Think about yourself and what you did first. This could be you. It could be the way you're talking to them. It could be something you're thinking. Think about you too, not just what's the problem with the client. We know this in general, I think, in training is that we regularly call a difficult client resistant. And this happens regularly in residential treatment because the adolescents are adolescents or they're early adults and they really are still concrete in terms of the way they think about things. And my, the people that I'm training are not speaking a language that they understand. You can't expect them to have a lot of insight and ask questions that direction when in fact they really need to be at being asked questions differently. So what is their role in the problem of resistance when it's really part of them that they need mm -hmm. to do something different? So we're all, hopefully we always focus on here in my, my training. And for me too, is what am I doing? Is, am I part of the problem? Is it, mm -hmm. am I causing it or contributing to it by the way I'm, what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. um, well, and I think that that highlights the group supervision is just another group where the clinicians are being asked to be vulnerable and revealing and that there's also hopefully being met with some universal or universality that in some ways we are all still trying to find our way into being better group leaders. Yeah. Group supervision is a whole another area that I think group has a lot to say about. It should. I mean, just as an example of understanding group in supervision, which is pretty much essential in my opinion, is that there's a lot of things that you need to be able to tell um, your group from what are the rules <laughs> What are the norms in this group? What do we reveal? What do we do? What's the purpose? And then how are people are getting evaluated? But there's so many problems in group supervision that a couple of years ago, two of my colleagues and I wrote a contract about group supervision because there's a lot of dual relationship problems in group mm -hmm. supervision that are not addressed ever. And so I'll just say one. I'm in group supervision presenting a case, for example, and the group tells me to do such and such which is typically the case, you know, it's like, it's generally case presentation based and people tell you ideas. But my individual supervision, which is outside, told me something else. How do I negotiate that, for example? Or if I have a problem with the group leader, how do I negotiate that as a, usually it's a trainee, right? So it's like, there's lots, lots of levels. And it actually is another one of those things is funny from my own experience of being in my own internship years ago. And I was in a, a group supervision where <laughs> the goal of the group was, it appeared, the norm was, to present the best case you could, tie it up in a nice bow and show off with the other interns <laughs> to see who could do it best. And I sat there and thought, huh, there's this big elephant in the room and nobody's addressing it, right? Mm -hmm. and, that, and it was another one of those things about group process. Right. Thought, this is all very odd. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And then, and then how is that getting translated even in unspoken ways into the groups themselves? 
And what have you found? I'd be curious, any thoughts around what you are finding to be effective in terms of group supervision? Who knows? But let me just tell you, when I first came here, I did a study with a colleague, I think in 1995 or something, I can't remember. We looked at group supervision, how it, what the goal was, and we were, two of us, Dr. Jenny Cornish, we're both group people. So we're interested in the process. Do people use process and how do they use process in these group supervisions? And the answer was no, basically. We looked at, we had a large sample. And then 15 years later, we looked at it again. And I think process has changed a bit. People have gotten more comfortable with that. So we looked at the sort of the same topic and a lot more group supervisors were saying that they use process. And we asked you know, how and when and where and what do you do with the, the people in the room? And so I, we were encouraged by that to say, well, maybe people are learning. So two things happened. One is that supervision is now a competency in, in, in several different organizations. And so now people are getting a supervision class generally. So they don't, they're not going in with no experience. And most people have a group class. And so I think that there was more information about what you could do. And so it's still not known. I mean, people do mostly, I think, still probably case-based supervision in a group. So it's more like supervision in a group than it is group supervision. And so for a process point of view, and go back to my own supervision, group supervision, I was already a group person by the time I went to my internship. And I remember thinking, there was a person in my group, one of interns who had the group leader as her individual supervisor also, and she was special. So I realized the, you know, just the point of favoritism and how that plays into a group. And I, I didn't say any of these things to the group, but I was already noticing all the crazy processes that were going on in this group supervision, then later helped me think about it more for my own research, but it was like, I still don't know that people know what group supervision is and all the potential problems mm -hmm. that can occur if you don't do it well, just like in a group, you know, mm -hmm. if you don't set norms, if you don't, you know, talk about the kind of things that could happen. We did an interesting study a couple of years ago, again, with my colleagues who are interested in groups, and we got a large sample of group supervisors and a large sample of group supervisees. They weren't connected, so they're not in the same group. But was well, this was an interesting thing, again, for my group process thinking, was that these two groups responded to the survey very differently. So we would say, did you talk about, to, to the supervisor, did you talk about norms? In almost every case, the group supervisor said, yes, we talked about all these things. And in almost every case, the group supervisees said no. Mm -hmm. So it was from how you're going to be evaluated. The only thing they agreed on, which I was very happy, was no, nobody's having sex with each other in the group. That was a very happy um, moment. But what I thought was also is that group leaders, group supervisors could be telling the truth, but it's not a one-shot deal to talk about confidentiality or norms. And so sometimes people do it that way. And then, of course, the supervisees didn't hear it. Mm -hmm. So it could have not happened or it could have happened as a one-shot deal. And that reminded me a lot about groups in general, 
about how groups are dynamic and that we really do need to be talking about confidentially across time mm-hmm. about norms and going back to them and those kind of things that group people know for sure and that they're not really incorporated in a lot of different kind of groups so mm-hmm. and really needing to appreciate just the ongoing nature of that that it's a that it's a continual conversation that's unfolding yes yeah and I think that that links so much in some ways back to the theme of the conference, the stories within working right. with unspoken material. And I mean, all of the pieces that we're addressing around process and then all of the challenges and the mixed feelings that come up around not wanting to address process. And I'm curious, any thoughts about what we might hear in your keynote or any things that you might be excited to share with us in terms of how you see or relate to that topic? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> I think that I will talk a lot about what is going on that's not being said in general. And, and there's always something going on that's not being said. It's not like, I don't even know what percentage of actually what's on the surface, right? There's probably less on the surface and more underneath the surface. And so I will be talking about some skill pieces, like For example, if somebody's angry at you, what does that mean and what do you do with it? Because oftentimes it really startles new people to have a group member mad. But what's the process underneath that? So I will be talking about that. I'll be talking about microaggressions and how you notice them and think about that. And Hopefully I will do some demonstrations of how, how that looks or what you could possibly think about. To tell you the truth, I'm not really sure yet. I'm still Mm -hmm. working on it. (laughs) I'm loving all these ideas so far. (laughs) So what I've thought about, though, is to try to pick out maybe the most difficult or awkward situations for students or early group leaders that they really don't know what to do with and that there's always something underneath there that they want to probably address. If they don't know what's going on, they probably don't know what's going on and probably it needs to be looked at. So what I want to do is to think about those moments that are really awkward and what we typically do or oftentimes is get rid of them, you know, as opposed to seeing them as a wonderful opportunity to investigate what's going on, be curious about what's happening. And that curiosity is probably the key piece here for me is that I always want to be curious and I'm not sure I know I have identified some areas that I think are pretty key and I hear all the time for students are the most difficult situations that I want to say, you know, what else could be going on and, and talk about that. So that's kind of where I'm going with that. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds really exciting and just relieving. Just be like, let's talk about awkward moments that, that make us uncomfortable, that make us cringe. And let's all just look at it together and be curious. <laughs> right. about Here's some of my and, Yeah. Um, to see those, I mean, I think that for like being angry, having client angry, I think it's easy enough for me to say, although it's hard to do, is to be able to say, don't, the worst thing you can do is get defensive. Just say, I'm glad you, I'm glad you let me know. Let's talk about what's going on. But that's not how, I have to learn how to edit what's going on for me too. It's like, mm-hmm you know, maybe the person's been a really uncooperative group member to this point, I, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I want to do something else. Um, but I also think at this point, I, I know how to edit the things that I shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And being defensive is 
pretty much the worst thing you can do, I mm -hmm. think, as a group leader mm -hmm. in that kind of situation. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I love how you're addressing the opportunity they represent, like that these awkward moments are really the fulcrums where the group is deepening in some yeah. ways. I mean, I don't know about you, but most of these situations are ones I've experienced too many times in, in my early experience. And, and, I, and I don't want my students necessarily to do it. So I do also really, really value role plays. I, I think that it's always nice to have some experience with it before you actually are in the middle of it. And so we try to do that. So I've done presentations on other presentations on difficult and awkward moments and what do you do? And there's many of them and I'm sure they could come up with more of them. So that I haven't thought about, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like a very dynamic and uh, experiential and engaging keynote. So I'm very, very excited. Well, good. Yeah. I'm excited too. I think that for me, it's exciting to go back and think about all the things that I've learned over time, often in difficult situations or difficult groups. I've done so many different kinds of groups, which is exciting to think about. And that I still love groups. You know, it's, it's been my one theme, I would say consistent theme throughout my entire time in graduate school and in before graduate school and in graduate school and now. It's just an exciting exciting time. And I really love to work with group people. I really do. They're always fascinating to me in terms of what they they know how to do or what they've done or what advice they've given me. So I really have benefited over the years from excellent group mentors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that I'm just feeling, noticing the time is just how much fun I've had talking with you. What a delight this has been talking with uh, another very much group person, my favorite kind of people. And I just wanted to thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I'm going to be really looking forward to uh, meeting you and spending more time with you in person. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sure our members are going to be really excited to be more fully involved with you. Great. Thanks. Take care.